Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders podcast where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating with your co-hosts father and son duo Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast make sure you subscribe. One minute of real world experience of doing things is worth a thousand hours sitting there thinking about what you think your purpose might be and stop thinking about thinking about it and go out there and do stuff go and volunteer in a homeless shelter go and coach some sport go and mentor a child go and take care of some animals do stuff right go and do some research on the internet bucket list ideas go and experience the world you know, there's hundreds of countries. And set a goal, go to at least one new country every year. And if you can't afford to go to other countries, set a goal to go to at least new, one new city in your own country every year. And by going to new places and doing new things and sampling new food and listening to new music and reading new books, by having new experiences, you make new distinctions. And you figure out what you don't like and you figure out what you do like. And when you figure out what you do like, and it lights you up inside, do more of that. So it's by doing things on purpose that you figure out your purpose. Today, we're excited to welcome one of the world's leaders in youth development onto the Golders podcast. Kevin Mincher is a high performance coach, educational innovator, and a youth advocate. He's worked in schools, high performing businesses, and with professional sports teams, transforming the environments he was part of. Notably, he doubled the national average in grades in the high schools that he was part of. He is the founder of Unstoppable Teen and Unstoppable Sport, and we know he will sprinkle some gold dust for you today. Kevin Mincher, welcome and thank you for taking the time out to be with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having us, gents. Kev, to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people for the greater good. What does Goldust mean to Kevin? I think really from a, a, an early age, my parents gave me the value of learning and education and whether it was a formal sense of education and learning or whether that was just picking up what you could from anybody who happened to be around you um, but as I've gotten older I've realized that there's distinctions to be made that just because somebody's got an opinion doesn't mean that they're right um, and so for me gold dust is really about being able to differentiate between what somebody who's doing well does that's different to those who are not doing so well. What's the difference that makes the difference? All right. And if you can make those distinctions, then you're able to utilize that knowledge and, and elevate your life, your performance to different levels that other people probably wouldn't think was possible. And so for me, that's what gold dust is. Fantastic. Now, Kev, if, if you had to explain what you do, how would you describe it? <laughs> oh, we're going to disappear down a rabbit hole here um, because I've often described what I do by saying to folks, well, that thing that I do, 
right? Um, uh, over the years, uh, my role in working with individuals or with organizations has really evolved and grown in ways that I never could have anticipated. If you gave me the short abbreviated title, you would say I was a performance coach. But then if you dug down into, well, what is a performance coach? Really, my, my responsibility is to help other people be the best version of themselves that they can possibly be. And so what that means then practically is taking the gold dust that I've had the privilege of learning from elsewhere, uh, the evidence-based strategies that lead to happiness and success, and then sharing those with other people. There is, as we're having this conversation now and as people are tuning in and listening, there are literally hundreds, thousands of researchers around the world, scientists discovering uh, what we human beings can do to make our lives better than they already are. We don't have to guess anymore. We don't have to figure it out for ourselves. There's plenty of evidence-based research. The problem is, is that all too often, uh, not with any negative intention, but that research isn't very accessible for most people. It's written in academic terms. It's hidden away in hard to find places. And so it's how, how do you make that knowledge and that brilliant gold dust information how do you make it rate, relatable how do you make it accessible so that whoever it is that's on the receiving end of it whether that's a teenager in in the uk where that's a parent in the united states where that's a coach in another country that that research becomes accessible that information becomes learnable and it becomes practical that they can turn it into action because inevitably it's, it's not just knowing stuff but it's doing stuff that actually improves lives and that improves performance so what I've come to realize is, and I apologize, I'll make a, a long answer even longer, um, is, that, is that I kind of chunk things into five sections. Uh, it was in my teenage years that I got an, an obsession about how do I make my own life the best that it could possibly be. And I'll, if you ever want to ask me about any of those trigger experiences, I'll be more than happy to share them with you. Um, but I used to go in, uh, you know, call me a nerd, curve me a geek, a swat, whatever you like. But I used to go into the self-help section of a bookshop. I couldn't walk down a street and go past a bookshop without going in it. And I would always hone in on the self-help personal development section. And over the years, my curriculum, what I help people with, has really evolved from that section of the bookstore, if you like. Uh, over time, it's now become... Um, called in schools it's character education and then in sport it might be called sports psychology but there's so much to it and I kind of put it into five strands of a curriculum so if we think about science you might chunk that into three sections where you might have um, you know biology physics and chemistry well I, I think about human life and learning the gold dust in five sections um, and it kind of didn't set out for it to do this but it, it spells an acronym that says life plus P. So there's life plus a P on the end. And the L is really about learning and thinking skills. So I help people embrace and use evidence-based learning and thinking skills that would then help them elevate their life to the next level. Uh, the I is about interpersonal communication, relationships, leadership, okay? and those skills. Uh, the F is around financial literacy, career skills, employability, and what it takes to succeed in the modern economy. And then the E is around emotional fitness, emotional literacy. Some people call it mental health and well-being. And then the plus P is about physical, because if I don't look after my body, I've got nowhere else to live, right? So it's, it's the physical skills, evidence-based strategies that I can use to improve my health and fitness, my energy levels, where that 
looks at sleep, whether it's about diet, exercise, or whatever it may be. So they're the five strands that I, as a performance coach, seek to share the gold dust of the evidence-based strategies to help other people become the best version of themselves that they could possibly be. Well, what is it about your job that actually drives you to get out of bed to help people achieve the, the dreams, the aims, the objectives that he set out for? Um, that's not going to be a quick answer because I think we go through our lives and we have experiences. Some of them we planned um, and many of them we didn't. And it's inevitable that as you come through those experiences, your winding path through the forest takes many a different turn. And those experiences shape you. And they, they make you who you are and the values that you've got. And so the first entry point to my forest, if you like, was that I chose my parents wisely. <laughs> and, and I got lucky to be born into a household where, as I mentioned before, I had uh, parents that valued learning and education. Um, but they were both of a caring nature. My mum was a nurse. She worked for the National Health Service and became a health visitor who specialised in early child development. Um, and my dad was a, a teacher and a coach. Uh, first of all, a teacher in schools and then a coach in sports. And so I lived in a house where your life wasn't full and you weren't fulfilled if you didn't make a difference in this world. It was about helping other people. And so on one hand, learning is a little bit selfish. It's about me and how I grow. And then the, the contribution is about giving, it's about making a difference, about paying it forward and, and, and spreading the word and, and, and passing it on. So I, I got lucky then because of the neighborhood that I lived in, uh, where we had volunteer coaches and the Sunday league football team that I played for. Um, I got lucky that I then was good at, at sport that happened to be our national sport in England, which is football, or as, as it's called in other places, soccer. And I got lucky to go to a professional football club um, called Sheffield United, where they happened to have the first full-time sports psychologist. I got lucky that while I was there, Tony Robbins came in, who was an American motivational speaker, best-selling author, performance coach, and so forth, who came and did sessions with our team behind closed doors. And, and, and the story goes on through that forest of many a winding road and twists and turns that I could never have predicted that shaped me. But those, those values that I was given in my early years by my parents, by my teaching school, by those volunteer sports coaches about, it's not just about you, it's about making a difference, kind of inevitably leads you down a career route where uh, you want to do something with your life where you're serving, contributing and making a difference. So, um, I, I, it wasn't the goal that I set when I was in school. It wasn't that I, what I thought my career was. I didn't plan it. It just evolved, evolved over time. Um, and what I did was I just picked up on the clues. And what I mean by, what I mean by that is sometimes you find yourself doing something and you absolutely hate what you're doing. And you're like, why am I here? Why, why did I come to this place? Right? Why did I order that food off the menu? How did I end up in this conversation? I'm never eating that again. I'm never coming here again. I'm never doing that again. And you, and you follow the clues, right? Um, I got fortunate that I got some good tasting food along the way too, where I found myself in experiences that I didn't plan. And I found myself losing track of time. I found myself with a smile on my face. I found myself with joy in my heart, as, as corny as it sounds. And they were, they were through youth groups and then through activities I did as I got older. 
So not that dissimilar to you, David, you played football, you then went on to coach. Um, but in that gap for me, I, I was a member of the Boy Scouts and I did all kinds of activities through the Scouts organization that enabled me to discover what I enjoyed doing. I did a program that we've got here in the UK called the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. And in the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, you have to um, do a range of challenges that increase in difficulty as you go through bronze, silver, gold, uh, different levels. And one of the challenges is that you have to learn a new skill. Uh, another challenge is that you have to survive in the outdoors without buying anything, where you've got to camp and trek overnight and cover a set mileage and take all your food and your tent and your clothes and everything with you, you and your mates. And you've got to survive in the wilderness. But one of the parts of the Duke of Edinburgh Awards is, is community service. And that you have to go and make a difference. And I volunteered to go back to the club that I played Sunday League football for. And I thought, well, if those men could volunteer for me, maybe I could volunteer for the next generation. And bear in mind, I was a teenager at the time. And I couldn't have anticipated that I was going to fall in love with the process of helping other people. I had no idea that that was going to be the case. I was just doing the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, you know? So it's, it's going through the woods and that forest and taking the twists and turns and saying yes a lot, discovering a lot of things that you don't like and never repeat it again, and being fortunate enough to discover the things that light you up inside. And you suddenly find yourself, not because somebody told you to, but you, you're setting your alarm clock and waking up earlier than everybody else. And you're staying up late at night and you're sacrificing weekends. We don't feel like a sacrifice. It feels more like a gift to you than it does to them, you know? And so it was those things over a long period of time combined with a sense of, this might sound harsh, but a sense of social injustice. I don't know about you and I don't know about the listeners that are tuning in at the moment, but where I went to school um, was not a privileged community. Every day I walked past burnt out houses. Um, uh, shortly before I went to school in that neighborhood, the coal mines had been closed. Unemployment was 80%. And in pretty much every single indicator that a government uses to measure how well a community is doing, we were in the bottom 5% on pretty much every measurement. And whether that was grades in high school, whether that was drug and alcohol abuse, whether it was crime rates, um, whether it was life expectancy, you know? And so that being faced with that, smelling that and tasting that on a daily basis, you either, you either accept it, or that's just how it is, or you get a fire inside and you wanna do something about it. And, and I was in the second group. I wanted to do something about it. So having gone off and played professional football and got a back injury and my career was over before it began, I decided I would do something about that um, and, and take all these things I'd been fortunate to learn from the scouts, from a local Sunday league football team, from the sports psychologist at Sheffield United, from the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. And I thought I'll pay it forwards and I'll, in my naivety, you know, still in my late teens and early twenties think, I'll try and do something to make my community and my neighborhood a better place than it is right now. And it was that drive that eventually led me, you know, to where I am today and 25 years later and, and also having this, this conversation and, and your listeners tuning in. Sorry, that wasn't a very quick answer, was it? But 
Hopefully, hopefully it was one that gave you, gave you some insight. Well, you get a plethora of life experiences, your, your five sections of how you would section off or aspects of life in which you can actually provide more colour, more value in, in learning and thinking skills, interpersonal relationships, financial literacy, you mentioned emotional literacy as well. And then yeah. of course your own physical skill, your own physical skill set to be to be healthy. Now founded a company in 1997 called Unstoppable Team. Yes. Now with all of those skills that you've learned previously and that desire to want to learn, develop and help others, what does the company do, Kev? What's the company's intention? Well, what it does now is different to what it did then. Um, because then, if I'm perfectly honest with you, I set off with a goal and I had a whole load of personal opinions about what I thought needed to happen in order to make that happen. Uh, so when I started Unstoppable Teen, I had, I had two goals. Uh, my first goal was that I wanted to help that subject of self-help, personal development, character education, whatever you want to call it, right? I wanted that to become an equally valued part of the national curriculum alongside English, math, science, and all those other traditional academic subjects. It made no sense to me, Keith, that I, I was legally obligated to go to school and I was forced to learn things that I, would, I knew at the time I would never use again ever in my life. I did hundreds of hours of studying Shakespeare and stuff like that, never used it once, right? I, Hundreds of hours of studying trigonometry, algebra, quadratic equations, Pythagoras' theorem, not used it once. So I had all these hours of learning at taxpayers' expense, which were, you know, I, I was a privilege to receive in the country that I was born in. And yet I didn't have one single lesson on self-esteem, self-confidence, how to communicate and relate with other people from different cultures and backgrounds, how to manage my time, how to open a bank account and make sure I've got more money left at the end of the month rather than more month left at the end of my money, right? All these life lessons that I needed to know and life skills that every human being needs, not one single lesson on that. And we looked around society and the burnt out house and I go, I wonder why it is that so many people are struggling. But they've read Macbeth and it was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. So I was like, I wanna do something to help shift it. I was naive. I was still in my late teens, early 20s. If I'd have known how difficult it would be to, to help evolve the juggernaut that is a political government education system, I probably would have never set the goal in the first place. That was my first goal. And I'm, I'm very pleased and very proud to say that I'm one of many people, certainly didn't do it on my own, that here in the UK, character education is now part of the national curriculum. It is now taught in every school. It's not equally valued yet alongside English, maths and science. It hasn't got the same resource in as English, maths and science. But I predict to you now that five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line, it will be. And so that is one big tick from where we started out 25 years ago. We're, we're cracking on with that. The second goal that I set at the same time was I just wanted to help a million young people like me get a better start in life. That it didn't make sense to me that you had to wait until you're in your 20s, your 30s or 40s and be lucky enough to go to a company where they might send you off to some training course where you could finally learn these skills. 
and, and I wanted to help a million young people, um, really from challenging, socially deprived, difficult backgrounds, get a better start in life. Uh, and that meant better grades in school, better mental health, you know, better relationships, better health, better energy, better life. And, um, and so over the 25 years or so since Unstoppable Teen started, there's around about half a million young people gone through our programs here in the US and in other places around the world. And um, I genuinely feel, you can probably hear it in my voice, um, that it, it's, it's, it's a privilege, you know? And what, what I personally, I thought I was doing it to give. <laughs> What I personally gained out of the experience is far more, far greater than what, what any of those young people that might have been in my audience over the years have, uh, have gained from it. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's a story from 1997. And back then I was really, I'll be honest, I was opinionated and I had a massive ego and I thought <laughs> I, thought I knew what was best. And, um, and so I started knocking on doors and going into schools and youth organizations and trying to tell them, you're doing the wrong things, you need to do this instead. And I realized that might not be the best approach <laughs> to, uh, to earn people's trust and respect. And over the years, I've sort of changed and the curriculum's changed. And we've now got this evidence-based approach that I, uh, I mentioned earlier on. But thanks for asking. Thanks for asking the question. It's a super story. And it just, it just shows that how we evolve and how we're prepared to uh, to impact people's lives, but equally what that contribution does to itself, re-energizes us, uh, and so. I'm I had sure no idea. Sorry, I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna because it's a really important point you've made, and I know you were gonna ask me a question there, but I don't want to lose that. Sure. I had no idea back then. My priorities were all wrong. I genuinely thought that if I got a Mercedes car and I earned a million pounds and I lived in a big house, then I'd be happy. Because society had brainwashed me and conditioned me, my surroundings, the media I consumed, the conversations I had, the, the unconscious messages that are constantly coming through the news, through the magazines, the TV, the radio is, you've got to get this. And then when you get this, then you'll be happy. And then I discovered it was all wrong because I had those cars and I lived in those houses and I did those things. And I was like, is this all there is, right? It's service through dedicating yourself to make a difference to others that want that help, right? That is the source of joy. And whether that's through feeding hungry people, whether that's helping people get running access to running water, whether it's doing a surgery in a hospital, whether it's through coaching a sport or teaching a subject in a school, it's through service whether it's to human beings or, or other creatures or other animals, right? That is, the so that is the secret source right there. That is the joy. And if you're doing that, you'll probably end up getting rewarded, not just emotionally, but in those materialistic sense as well, beyond your wildest dreams. Yeah, Sorry, so I interrupted the question that you were going to ask. No, 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 I think it's an important point that you raised. We're creatures of habit. We get conditioned by the media, what we see on the television to, to get more. Uh, you only need to look at the children nowadays instead of just being content with getting just a, a normal pair of trainers. They have to go and buy the most expensive ones. Or, and, and it's a constant stretch on, on resource, I am sure. Now, if people in the grand scale of things, everybody's walking around with a flower in the mouth and we know reality that isn't the case, particularly the current landscape. So if people are struggling to find a purpose in life or, or drive, 
what tips, Kev, can you share with us that may help get them back on track? Great, great question. Um, the first thing I would say is this, is I, I live in the real world, all right? Um, and I understand that we, in the system that we live in, 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 in my country, in the country where you are at the moment, um, we have to pay for stuff, right? So I'm not suggesting right out the traps here that people should um, quit their job and um, try and find their life's purpose and then try and figure out a way to make money and their earning. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, that is, I'm never going to recommend that to anybody, all right? We have to keep a roof overhead. We've got to put food in our belly. We have responsibilities to the things we've got to pay for. And whilst we're doing those things, it is possible to ask ourselves questions on a daily basis and to plan into our weekly, monthly, annual calendar experiences that can help us figure out what we might believe our purpose is. Our purpose, our reason why we're here. Why, why are we here on planet Earth? Right? What's it all about? And I don't believe there's one answer to that question. I think there are as many answers as there are people. And um, nobody can tell you what your purpose is. Um, one has to discover it for oneself. And uh, the first thing is, is, is have an intent. Uh, there's a difference between having an intent and putting pressure on yourself to discover. So if just in the back of my mind, my intention is over time to figure out why I'm here and therefore spend more of my time doing it, right? That's my intention. There's a difference between that and putting my pressure. I've got to know by the end of the week. I must know by the end of the month. If I get myself this book that talks about life purpose and then I must know the answer by the end of the book, you probably won't discover it. The pressure's too great. Then what I would say is, is that I don't believe there is one life purpose for me. I think there are many as we evolve through the stages of life. So in other words, what, what brought me joy and the focus, the primary focus of my life in my uh, 40s ought to be different to what it was in my teenage years. There's, there's something amiss if I'm still focused on the same things in my 40s that I was focused on in my teenage years, all right? Um, what gave me great joy and what my purpose was in my infanthood in those early years is going to be obviously different to what I'm doing in my 20s, 30s. And again, it'll evolve by the time I get into my 50s, 60s, 70s. So I think about life in chapters. And instead of going, I've got one purpose for my life, it's I've got one purpose for this chapter. And that over time, I've got to be smart enough to recognize that that will evolve. And what made me satisfied and fulfilled before ain't necessarily doing it for me now, so it's time for the next chapter. And let me go and discover what that might be. So there's a lot to come in here. So first of all, have an intention to know what it is. The reason I say that is um, if you can just go in the pursuit of it and if you can go and seek it, your life becomes an adventure. You get off the sofa, you get out of the boring mundane routine. All right. And if you start asking different questions and going to different places, that, that leads us to the next bit is that purpose is not an intellectual pursuit. One can go and sit on a large rock, um, you know, up a mountain somewhere and meditate like the bothering of what is the purpose of life. And you can have an epiphany. You can. People have done it. It's just really rare. And frankly, it doesn't pay the bills, right? So, you know, you've you got to go and do a job and then fit in the meditation in between time. And that, and, 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 and that can be work, workable. But having the intention, asking the questions, 
And then I think it was Dolly Parton who said, discover your purpose, discover what your life is about for you, and then do it, do it deliberately, do it over and over and over again, right? And when you discover your purpose, when, when the goals that you've got, when the job that you have, the career you have is in alignment with why you believe you're here on planet Earth, it's not a job anymore. It's a hobby that you get paid for, right? You have 10 times more energy for it than you had when it was just a job, right? When you have a relationship, whether that's friends and colleagues or a romantic relationship that's in alignment with your purpose, you have infinitely more energy and joy and happiness and you, you can't wait to get out of bed in the morning and you, and, and you don't want to go to sleep at night because you want to stay awake for every minute you know for me it was watching a movie called dead poet society with um blessing uh, robin williams and i remember i remember a scene in there where there's a new class of boys i don't want to spoil the movie i recommend it for people if they um if they haven't already seen it there's a scene where it's a new start of a new school year and it's an old boys school it's set in like the 1950s or 60s and Robin Williams is English teacher and um, he has a different way of teaching than the traditional way and he, he takes the kids out of the classroom they're standing in front of a wall of all these photographs and he said these are the photographs of the students that attended this school in the past you know and he said um, what are they what do they all have in common and the boys start guessing, and he's like, eh, wrong, eh, wrong. All right? And they said, uh, no, they're all food for worms. And the lads are looking at each other, going, what's he talking about? He said, you know, they're all dead. You know, and we, as far as I know, nobody's ever escaped this thing alive. Do you know what I mean? We got one life. If we're lucky, we're here for 80, 100 years, you know? And it, as far as I know, it's not a dress rehearsal. I, I don't get to come back and do it again. Right? So I want to make sure that. If I have 80 birthdays, right? If I'm lucky, I've got 80 23rd of July's in my life. And that's it, they're gone. Never to be repeated. I don't wanna waste any of those. And so if I'm, if I'm faffing around wasting time on stuff that isn't really what I feel my life's about, then I'm down to 79. Then I'm down to 78 and 77 and 76. And I don't wanna waste them. And so, there's Robin, Robin Williams at this wall of photographs and the new class looking at them. He said, they're all food for worms. And he said, lean in and listen to their message to you. And the lads are looking at each other. He was mad, this teacher's mental, you know. So they, they, they sort of lean in and he starts whispering, he says, copy. The boys are like looking over the shoulder going, what's going on here? He says, Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. I'm sat there on the sofa at home, 15 years old, Doncaster, going to my high school class, has burnt out houses on a daily basis. And Robin Williams is saying, make your life extraordinary. Nobody had ever challenged me to do that before. They challenged me to figure out what on earth the witches were doing in Macbeth. They challenged me to get an A star, top marks on a science or a math test, but they never challenged me to make my life extraordinary. It blew my mind. And what compounded the fact, Keith, is that it was my dad that recommended the movie. And my dad ain't got a good reputation for recommending good movies, you know what I mean? So it took me by surprise, I didn't see it coming. So for me, 
you sort of throw all that together. And if you want to find your purpose, you've got to have an intention of making your life extraordinary. Then by all means, do some meditation, but make sure you keep paying the bills. Keep having the intent, asking the question. But in, here's the thing. Dolly Parton said, figure out what it is and do it on purpose. And I, I think, and I, and I could be giving the credit to the wrong person here, but I think it was Seth Godin that said, Dolly Parton was right. Figure out your purpose and do it deliberately. But the way you figure out your purpose is to do things deliberately. Does that make sense? You can't, it's not an, it's not an academic intellectual experience. One minute of real world experience of doing things is worth a thousand hours sitting there thinking about what you think your purpose might be. And stop thinking about thinking about it and go out there and do stuff. Go and volunteer in a homeless shelter. Go and coach some sport. Go and mentor a child. Go and take care of some animals. Do stuff, right? Go and do some research on the internet, bucket list ideas. Go and experience the world. You know, there's hundreds of countries. And set a goal, go to at least one new country every year. And if you can't afford to go to other countries, set a goal to go to at least new, one new city in your own country every year. And by going to new places and doing new things and sampling new food and listening to new music and reading new books, by having new experiences, you make new distinctions. And you figure out what you don't like and you figure out what you do like. And when you figure out what you do like and it lights you up inside, do more of that. So it's by doing things on purpose that you figure out your purpose. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Just keep talking, Kev. <laughs> keep talking. I don't, I don't, we don't need to ask any questions here. <laughs> you got to shut me up. <laughs> well, with that being said, though, you've, you've touched on it a little bit. We all have an innate quality to be brilliant at something. Yeah. What that is, obviously, is defined by going out and having these experiences and learning and figuring out what it is your purpose is or purposes, but what helpful tips can you share with us that may engage people to realize their own genius? It's a wonderful question. And I think the first thing that came to my head is have 20 seconds of courage. And what I mean by that is the number one thing that holds people back from pursuing their passions and their purpose and figuring it out is put it simply in one word, it's fear. And it's many different types of fear. I'm frightened of being ridiculed by my peer group because I think I might be passionate about a different sport that's not the mainstream sport that all my mates are into, all right? Or I'm, I'm frightened of going for it and not being good enough and failing. Um, I'm frightened of not being able to afford it. I haven't got the financial resources. I'm frightened. There's all these fears, right? And it was Zig Ziglar who, bless him, passed away a few years ago. I used to listen to his tapes. Now you, now you know why I've got no hair anymore. I was listening to cassette tapes. You, you won't remember cassette tapes, David, right? That was before, <laughs> before we had Spotify and stuff like that. We had CDs, right? And before, before that, we had cassette tapes. I remember, I remember having a Zig Ziglar cassette tape on goals. 
and he talked about the number one thing that held people back was fear. And, and it was an abstract concept to me back then because I hadn't really set a goal and tried to go and pursue it. But then when I did and all these fears came up of what if I can't afford it? What if I'm not good enough? What if I do succeed? And then none of my mates come on the journey and now suddenly I'm lonely and I'm successful, but I ain't got any relationships anymore. What it, and all these what ifs. Um, and, and to take from Zig and to pass it, pay it forward from Zig, Zig said FEAR spells an acronym of F-E-A-R, which is false evidence that's appearing real. It's a story you're telling yourself inside your own head that I can't do it, I'm not good enough, I ain't got enough money, I ain't got enough time, people won't support me. Right? It's, it's false evidence, but it appears real. And if you keep telling yourself the story or you let the media tell you the story or your peer groups bully you or you, your teacher at school put that doubt into your head or whatever it may be, that false evidence, if you say it often enough and over and over again, it starts to appear real. But it's not real, it's made up. And anybody that's ever done anything also felt the same fear, the same, the same fear, the same worry, the same stress, the same anxiety, the same concern, right? The difference is that they had 20 seconds of courage. Is it out that movie, yeah, so we bought a zoo or something like that, the family that bought a zoo, I can't remember. But there's a, the, the father and the son are, are sat there, I think it's the lion's cage in front of them, the boy's having a little bit of a problem, and the dad looks at him and says, son, all you need is 20 seconds of courage. And we blow it up to be bigger than that. We think we've got to be courageous of every minute of every day. We think we've got to be fearless. We think we've got to be the ultimate impenetrable self-esteem where we never experience doubt. It's a myth, as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't exist. But when that self-doubt comes in, when that fear, that stress, that concern steps up, and you've got that thing you want to go and pursue and find that purpose, but you've got all the reasons why you can't, all that false evidence, take a deep breath and have yourself 20 seconds of courage and go do it. Step outside your comfort zone. And all growth, and therefore happiness, happens outside your comfort zone. So have 20 seconds of courage to walk across that dance floor and ask that person for their phone number and go and ask them and take them out on a date. Have 20 seconds of courage to draft that email and click send to go and apply for your dream job or your dream career. Have 20 seconds of courage to go and set up that fundraising page, to go and make a difference to that charity that you so passionately care about. And let that fear, that false evidence that appears real, just dissolve into the background. I'm chuckling with you here, Kevin, not, not chuckling at you. The intensity of your message, the energy, which is extremely energizing. In a chapter of our book uh, that David and I co-authored, we talk about storytelling. And for all those that are listening, when coaching, the power of storytelling what importance do you put on storytelling? I think it might be the main thing. I used to believe, and it's one of the many things I've been wrong about, I used to believe that it was about the strategies. I used to believe that if you give me the recipe, you tell me what steps to take and in what order, I'll get from where I am to where I want to be. What I've come to realize is, is that before anybody will take the first step, they have to believe that the journey is possible. And one of the main ways that people come to know that the journey is possible is because somebody else just like them has completed the same journey. And that's storytelling. 
That's finding somebody else just like them who had the same concerns, the same issues, the same fears, who, who pulled away from them to start with, who then went again and conquered those fears and eventually got to the so-called promised land. And if they can do it, and that's the fundamental belief that then comes from storytelling, if they can do it, I can too. And once you can help your family members, your teammates, your colleagues, people in your community go, if they can do it, I can too, then it's not a question of if, it's just a matter of when. So for me, I spend, I spend hours looking for stories and metaphors and examples. And they could be high profile, um, success celebrity stories. They can be um, made up, fictional, you know? Um, but so long as the person that's receiving the story can relate to the character, they can start to, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I had the same thought, I had the same doubt, I had the same issue. Oh, but they got over it. If they can get over it, I can too, right? And then you're into inspiration. Then the strategy is worthwhile. But until that point, there's no point giving recipes to people because they ain't gonna use them. You're wasting your time. So it's the oldest teaching tool since humanity began, right? We've told stories since the beginning of time. And, and I think we, too many of us lost the art and we started to rely too much on big data and evidence and scientific proof as if that will convince people to do the right thing. Well, if, if, if big data evidence and scientific proof was sufficient to convince people, nobody would ever smoke, less people would be drinking alcohol, more people would be taking on a vegetarian, vegan type diet, and more people would get eight to eight hours of sleep per night and, and hydrate and do all those things that are scientifically evidence-based proven to help most people. But it's not about that, it's the story. And if you tell a better story, inevitably the people you're with will, will be inspired and get a better result. Well, speaking of stories and going down that route, when you look at age, Kev, people, people say, oh, he's, he can't do that, he's too young. Or she can't do that, she's too old. And it's been... I guess, proven that that's not necessarily the case, but yet still people say that is it. And I actually, I, I listened to a, a podcast where a, a guy said on the podcast, he said, who's to say that a four-year-old can't be taught certain characteristics, can't be taught certain things because people turn around and use the excuse, oh, well, he's only four, it's okay. He hasn't learned to say hello to people yet. He's, he's only five, it's okay, he's still young. When really with that being the case, it's, kids can say five, uh, kids, can, kids can say hello at four and five years of age. They can go and have conversations with adults. It's just the limiting beliefs around them that just kind of let them get away with it. Now, with that being said, so Jordan Romero, is an American mountain climber who was only 13 when he reached the summit of Mount Everest, which is absolutely bonkers. 
it's nuts to think about. And then there's a guy, Frank Rothwell, who was a 70-year-old grandfather who became the oldest person to row unassisted across the Atlantic. What thoughts do you have on age being a factor of doing or not doing something? I think it's remarkable that people think that's remarkable. Why, why is it that people think that's the exception rather than that actually being the norm? It's not remarkable. It's exactly what human beings are capable of. And because people think it's remarkable, they start to believe that they can't do it because there's only those exceptional lucky unicorn few that could go and do that. It's, it's not. We're all capable of remarkable things like that. And age has got nothing to do with it. I caught myself on this. And in a completely different context, David, because it, it, was, um, it was in a nightclub. I remember the first time I started going to bars and nightclubs, I felt like I felt like a child. I probably was a child. And I looked around, I was like, oh, they're all so much older than me. Like, one day I might be able to ask a woman like that out on a date, but phew, could never, you know, she'd laugh at me if I asked her for a phone number now. And I remember looking around thinking, everybody in here is like twice my age. In the blink of an eye, fast forward a few years, I remember being in a nightclub looking around the room thinking, God, I'm old, right? Everybody in here is half my age. <laughs> I could never ask her out on a date. She'd laugh at me, think I'm a granddad, <laughs> right? And I found myself in the corner on this bar stool thinking, when was I the right age for bars and nightclubs, right? At one point I was too young, now I'm too old. Surely I was the right age at some point, but I think I missed it, right? <laughs> right? And I think it's the same is true, not just for bars and nightclubs. It's like getting yourself an education. Why is it that only people aged uh, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 go and get a college degree? Why can't, why can't I go and get a degree when I'm 80? Right? Why can't I go and get a college degree when I'm 12? Why is it that there's belief or expectation that one day when I'm in my 30s, I might have enough life experiences to maybe start my own business? Why can't I do that when I'm young or again, old age has got nothing to do with it belief mindset has got absolutely everything to do with it and if you want to put the shackles on yourself if you want to limit your potential and say oh i could never do that then that's your right to do so it's your life you can do with it whatever you want if you don't want to buy into the pessimism and negativity that's been brainwashed into us all right Oftentimes, and I'll get on my soapbox, you've got me start now, David. Why, you, why did you ask me this question? I'm going to go on a proper rant here, aren't I? Go for it. Because there's this thing in, in certain cultures around the world, age is valued and the older people in society are held in the highest esteem. They're the people that have got the greatest experience and therefore they've got the greatest wisdom. And they're treated like they are the most valuable assets in that community, quite rightly so in my opinion. And there are other places around the world where age is to be avoided at all costs. I'll pay tens of thousands in cosmetic surgery to avoid getting old. I'll inject my face with, <laughs> paralyze it so I can't, I can't smile anymore. But I, I, I think when I look in the mirror that I look younger than I am. Are you smiling now? can't tell is that a frown your face has not moved right so so we've been brainwashed by the advertising industry that 
and this is particularly targeted at, at young girls. It starts at a young age, right? And it then goes, it's now gone into body image issues, not just with teenage girls, but with teenage boys as well now, and, and which, which starts with the advertising. And if you look at most adverts to do with fashion and cosmetics that are targeted at young people, and you translate the advert, it basically says, um, you are incomplete without our product. And when you have our product, you'll become lovable. So buy our product. And that could be a face wash. That can be uh, a pair of designer jeans. That could be, could be uh, some jewelry. But it basically shows somebody on their own, away from their peer group, her feeling rejected, feeling ugly. The product comes along. And if you have the product, now you'll be accepted by your peer group. You'll be asked out in a day. And so we are brainwashed from a young age to try and avoid getting old. And yet it's the one thing that's inevitable about life. If we're lucky, we get old. We're lucky enough to stick around for a long time on planet Earth. And so the mindset that I can't do stuff when I'm young because I'm, I'm too young. I can't do it when I'm old. Well, when is the right age then? All right. And that's a personal thing. For some of us, we'll, we'll get going at a young age. For some of us, it takes a little bit longer. There's no right, there's no wrong, all right? And it takes a little bit of uh, self-reflection, a little bit of, I'm not playing that advertising game anymore. I'm not gonna allow myself to be brainwashed by that media juggernaut that, where they spend billions and, and I'm gonna make my own choices in life now. And I'm going to prove what I personally am capable of. We've got a 13-year-old representing Team GB this summer in the Olympics at skateboarding. Um, and if, just, just dealing with the youngsters for a moment. Today's youth generation, in my opinion, are the most remarkable youth generation in history. According to research, they consume less alcohol and less illegal drugs than other previous youth generations. They raise more money for charities and make more difference in their community than any other youth generation. We've got more teenage and young entrepreneurs where they've started their own business from scratch and whether that's in their local community or on an international scale. We've got more young professional athletes. We've got more young actors and musicians, all right? There's never been a better time to be alive, be young and make things happen when you're young because technology and all the other enablers now. And at the same time, we've got the baby boomers coming of age who was saying, well, just because I reached a number doesn't mean I have to stop working. We've got Quincy Jones, who I was totally inspired by, listened to his Michael Jackson music. He produced the Thriller album, which was top of the charts when I was a kid. And I remember watching Quincy Jones. He was around his 80th birthday and he was still making music and he was still performing and he was still mentoring people. And the journalist in the interview said, Quincy, when are you gonna retire? And with utter disdain, he said, retire, retire? Why would I retire? He said, I get paid to do the thing that I love the most. Why would I stop doing that? <laughs> right? I thought, great point. Well presented, <laughs> right? 80 years old, still going strong at the point that he did that interview. So I think it's fiction. David, the age thing, all right? And, and I think you've got to be careful. And, and, and it's one mindset, and, and actually we could have, you could have picked any. 
Um, and it's about, it's not just about age, it's about, well, I would do that, but I haven't got a high enough education. I would do that, but I was born in the wrong country. I would do that, but I'm the wrong sex or sexuality. I would do that, but, and that all the mindsets come out as the reasons why I can't do it. And yet, there are dozens of other people that have got exactly the same things as you, but they are doing it. So, as somebody once said to me, Kev, you can have your excuses, or you can have success and happiness, but you can't have both. So make your choice and live with it. So, uh, so for me, I'm not going to let age be one of my excuses. Do you know this? When I started Unstoppable Teen, I genuinely believed that by the time I was 30, I would have to shut the project down. Because when I'm 30, the kids won't relate to me anymore because I'll be too old. That, I genuinely believed that when I founded Unstoppable Teen. And yet I got to 30, I was having more fun doing it and I was making a bigger difference and the audiences were laughing more often. And I was like, why would I stop now? And I believe, but, but, when, but when I get to 40, my hair will fall out by that point. And then I definitely won't be able to relate to them anymore. And yet I'm still enjoying it. They're still enjoying it and I'll keep going. You know, So um, be mindful of those beliefs negative ones like that mindset around age and uh, stand stand guard at the door of your mind that's for sure Kev you're you're obviously a very positive individual you come across as that it's an infectious this has been a wonderful wonderful episode and you mentioned earlier there's no smoke screens around things reality is what it is so when you wake up certain times in the morning when you go to bed you're there's, a, there's an energy and then you wake up in the morning and that's gone. It's lost. Where, where's it gone? Have you ever lost focus on an objective where the wheels have fallen off for you? And if so, how do you get it moving again? Yeah. <laughs> but the answer is yes, because uh, I am human, <laughs> right? Um, I think that we have a spectrum of emotions for, if you were generalizing, if we went from, you know, a scale uh, from minus 10 on a negative side of a scale, the emotions we don't like feeling through zero up to a positive 10. And that was an imaginary scale on the positive 10. There was that happiness, that love that you thought, you know, that sense of purpose and all those things feeling like contributing. So you got negative 10 through zero up to positive 10. See, I knew those math lessons would come in handy for something. All right, there we go. A scale. All right. So, um, if I asked you, where do you feel like most people live their lives? And I'm going to, I ask this question to my audiences all the time. So where do you feel like most people live most of their lives? That doesn't mean all of the people all the time, but if you thought about your neighbors, the community you live in, your colleagues at work, members of your family or whatever, minus 10, where you're utterly depressed, don't want to be here anymore, positive 10, where you euphoria in love and, and all that, ground zero, right? Scale. David, no judgment from me, honest, honest opinion. Where do, where do you feel like most people live most of their lives? Four, four five. Okay, maybe. good. Yes. Yeah. Keith, what do you reckon? Along. Yeah. Yeah, very similar. There's many circumstances and many things can change. I, but yeah, I would say, yeah, averaging four or five. And bearing in mind, we live, we got, we got 
Keith on the, on the line in the United Kingdom. We've got David on the line from the United States. I'm in Spain. We live in democratic free countries, right, where we have um, economic success, where we've got freedom and democracy and all that sort of stuff, where you get free uh, healthcare in some places, not necessarily all places. You, you, get, <laughs> you, you, know, you get free education up to the age of 18. And yet your estimate is most people might live around about four or five. When asked teenage audiences the same question, they say it's between minus three and up to plus three. Most people living most of their lives around ground zero, never really feeling very much happiness, never really feeling very much sadness, just mundanely going through the routine of one day to the next. And therein lies a really interesting insight. There was one study that was done that said 17%, that's one seven, just 17% of adults say they are happy with their lives. That can't be right. And if it is right, and the next generation is copying the lifestyle habits of the previous generation, it's inevitable that 17% of the next generation will be only happy with their lives. Well, that ain't good enough. That's nowhere near good enough. So when we live around ground zero, where we're on that scale, where we might go to minus three, where we might go to plus three, we spend a lot of time around ground zero, right? We're in no man's land, as I call it, where we're comfortable. And here's the thing. I'm not really experiencing much pain, but I'm not really experiencing much pleasure either. And they are the two driving forces in people's lives. Because if you're in pain, you'll do anything to get out of it. If you experience illness and disease, you'll suddenly change your diet, you'll exercise more, you'll get more sleep because I, I need to get rid of this cancer that's in my body. Because you experience pain, you'll take action. And if you're surrounded by pleasure, people that are living their lives at an eight, nine, 10 out of 10, and they're joyous in their relationships and they're having a great time in their work and they've got fantastic social lives and they're traveling around the world and they're having great fun with their hobbies and they live at a level eight and above, you want more of that too. The problem is, is that most of us don't experience much pain and most of us don't experience much pleasure and we're in no man's land and we're in a world of comfort and comfort hills drive a motivation. And I was 39 years old and I was sat on the sofa and I was in my lovely apartment with floor to ceiling glass on the 23rd floor, looking out of a national park with the city in the foreground and I was, the TV was on in the background. I was slouched down. I thought, Kev, you're in trouble because you're comfortable. Life just got a whole lot of easy for you. You've lost your drive. What are you gonna do? Because sooner or later, most people settle. And they go, this is my level. They settle in their health, this is my level. They settle in their relationships, this is my level. They settle in their education and grades, this is my level. They settle in their finances, they settle. This is me and they stop striving. When I found myself on that sofa at 39, looking out the window, realizing I got comfortable and I was around ground zero, never really experiencing much joy, but never really experienced much sadness. How I got myself out of it was to set some new goals that inspired me. That's the answer. And if what you've written down on the piece of paper, people who set goals, and I forget the statistic, but it's something like 42%. People that set goals uh, are 42% more likely to achieve the goals than people that don't set goals, that don't write them down. 
And if you set your goal and tell somebody else, that probability jumps to 78%. So it's not enough to just think it in your own head. You've got to write it down. You've got to set a goal that inspires you. You've got to look at it and go, I can't wait to do that. My life will be so much better when that happens. And it doesn't matter whether that's in your relationships, your physical health, your emotional health, your spiritual life, the most charity, community, whether it's materialistic things, whether it's your career finances, start setting goals around the wheel of life. Goals that give you some juice and some fuel and they excite you. And if it doesn't compel you, if it doesn't inspire you to go, I can't wait for that to happen, you've picked the wrong goal. Scrub it out and set something else. And then have an accountability partner. And this is where coaches come in handy. Either have a best friend who you trust who won't ridicule you, a family member who you know will support you, encourage you and go out the way to be there for you as you go on that journey, or go and get yourself a coach or a mentor. Because a coach or a mentor is somebody that won't let you off the hook. That if you make a statement in a coaching session saying, I'm going to do this, one week later, I'll be on the phone going, have you done it? And, then, and you're now accountable. And you don't want to pick up the phone to me and you ain't done it. You don't want to take that call. So you'll now get it done. So for me, once you've found your purpose, you set goals, you pursue them. It's inevitable that at some point in time, you'll run out of steam and you'll get comfortable. And after that period of rest, set some more goals that inspire you and get on the next chapter. Kev, with that being said, if anyone listening wanted to reach out to you, how can you be contacted? Um. I'm on that Tinder web, so that if people want to reach out, um, if it's school, education, uh, Unstoppable Teen related, they can go to unstoppableteen.com. Um, there's a load of free resources there that people can use and, and access and download, whether that's listening to the podcast or, or other resources that are there. And there's a contact us section on that website. Um, if it's sport related and they want to apply the things that I do to sport, whether that's youth sports, professional sports, you know, I've worked with Olympians that's gone off to uh, Tokyo. I'm working with professional football teams that are based in the UK. And I also work with youth sports in the United States. So if it's sports related, people go to unstoppablesport.net. Okay. So there's unstoppableteam.com and there's unstoppablesport.net. Net. And on both those pages, you'll, you'll find a contact us section. And um, I, I always reply to people. I don't always get back straight away because I'm hectic and busy, but I always do reply to people if they've got any questions. Fantastic. Well, I'd like to thank you for, for coming on today. You've filled me with energy. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure my dad feels the same. It's been a, a long time like we spoke about prior to coming on, it's been a long time since we we saw each other. Yeah. Um, but it's been been great to connect and really enjoyed having you on. It's It's been fantastic. So I'd like to thank you for that. Uh, well, no, it's, it's me that's saying the thank you. Um, I, I appreciate you asking me on, um, being brave enough or bold enough to ask some questions. You let the ball out of the cage there, didn't you? Um, but uh, I'm sorry if I've uh, ran over on time. I hope that people have found something of value. And please, let's make sure we don't leave it 20 more years before we reconnect. Right, so, so thanks to you and thanks to the listeners for sticking with us all, all this time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. 
Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.